You're listening to the inaugural podcast of the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrored halls of academia. I'm one of your hosts, Alex West. I am a writer for Famous Monsters of Filmland, and I have my very own blog called Scare Tactic. With me is my other co-host, being the co, um, and would you like to introduce yourself? I can introduce myself. My name is Andrea Subasati. Uh, I'm a sociologist, and I, I like to focus on the cultural aspects of horror film. So I wrote a book on zombie mythology, and I've contributed to a few magazines and websites and books. But my podcasting experience mostly came from the Room Org podcast. Uh, entirely came from the Room Org podcast, now that I think about it. And the first time I went on was to discuss my book. And the second time I went on was to discuss the cultural aspects of I Spit on Your Grave and to compare and contrast the movie with the remake. And uh, it was very contentious and uh, it was huge discussion, so much so that we had to do... Um, we had to do a remake of the podcast, and uh, so yeah, I think podcasts are great and really neat, and I'm really excited to launch this one. So as you may have guessed from the title of this podcast, we are going to be dealing with the academic side of horror, but I promise, in hopefully a very, very fun way, um, we're going to take on some topics that come up time and again when we talk about horror movies and just have a dialogue back and forth and uh, see what kind of comments we come up with. We do uh, really encourage feedback. Uh, so if you have any, we can be reached at facultyofhorror at gmail.com. Now, one of the reasons I really got into the academic side of horror and why I write about horror is because we deal with one of the most interesting aspects of humanity when we talk about horror movies, which to me is repression how repression manifests itself, why we're scared, how we get scared. And I think it's probably the most interesting thing to write about. And it's the most continually giving source of uh, topics in my mind. And again, my lovely co-host, Andrea, has a slightly different background, but it's all in sociology. I mean, people enjoy horror film for a lot of different reasons, be it the, you know, the gore, the guts the tits, the kills, whatever. Um, but one thing that Alex and I agree on is that horror films have a lot to say about us, about you know what we fear, how we personify that fear, and how we depict ourselves coping with the fear. Um, and my background in sociology has me mostly looking at these films from a cultural standpoint, like you know, how Western fears are tackled and what is interesting about Western movies as opposed to European movies and Canadian movies as opposed to American movies, which we're going to get into today. Um, so Alex and I both looked at horror in our postgraduate studies, so we put this podcast together as an opportunity to just nerd out on our favorite topics on the genre. And we do really want to inspire discussion, so please feel free to email us, even if it's just to say how much you love the way Alex says horror. <laughs> horror. She has, a, she has a great pronunciation of it. And I love it because whenever I say horror, people are like, oh, I thought you said horror. And it's like, oh, I've got to adopt the Alex way. <laughs> so anyway, to get us started on today, today we want to talk about John Carpenter's 1978 mega hit cult classic film, Halloween, which is considered by many to be the quintessential slasher film considered by many to be the first slasher film, but we're going to talk about that in a bit. And we're also going to talk about a little Canadian horror flick called Black Christmas, which actually came out four years earlier and has a lot of the same slasher elements, but doesn't really get the same props that uh, 
that Halloween does. So our assignment today is to compare and contrast the two with reference to claims about which is the most influential and important film in the slasher subgenre. Yeah, and we're just going to talk it out, see what we both feel like, and kind of take the topics that come up in both of the movies and really examine the way they both deal with them because they actually do deal with them in extraordinarily different ways, which leads to a really interesting conclusion for both films. Now, one of the reasons Halloween and Black Christmas get linked up so much is because of some comments that the director of Black Christmas has made over the years. Bob Clark, the director of Black Christmas, has said, you know, on several different occasions that he essentially gave John Carpenter the idea for Halloween. John Carpenter was a huge fan of Black Christmas. He was asking Bob Clark, you know, what would you do next? And so Bob Clark said, you know, I would have it that the psychopath was captured, institutionalized, and he breaks out the next year on Halloween, calling the film Halloween. And then John Carpenter obviously took it, ran with it, and Bob Clark, to his credit, does give Carpenter a lot of credit in his own right for creating kind of a singular vision. So I don't get the sense that there's a lot of animosity. It's just, you know what, someone had a great idea, did a great film, someone else expounded on that theme and idea and made something really, really different. I don't think Bob Clark could have made the film that John Carpenter made. And they both have their strengths and uh, their weaknesses, um, though I, I'm going to kind of fess up right now. I think Black Christmas is a near-perfect film yeah. in my mind. Um, pass this back, and let's just, let's just run through for um, shits and giggles uh, synopsis because we all need to know what happens in these. So let's start back in the year of 1974. It's a crazy time. Canadians are trying to make movies. And what do they come up with? What's going to make us the big bucks and make us relevant to the rest of the world, i.e. the United States of America? Right. So in the interest of fessing up, I actually I hadn't seen Black Christmas prior to deciding to do this podcast. So I just kind of checked it out last weekend. So it's still really fresh in my mind. And it really, really blew me away. I mean, I knew it was good. I had heard it was good. You know, one of those movies that everybody kind of agrees is good, except for the critics when it first came out. But we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, but I was really blown away by how excellent it was. And I have to agree that it's probably a near perfect movie. Um you know, giving a synopsis for a slasher film is kind of like giving a recipe for cheese and crackers, but here goes. It's Christmas break, and there's a party happening at a sorority house. Hard to believe, I know. Uh, the occupants of the house include four young students and their house mother, Mrs. McHenry, and the girls have been receiving obscene phone calls, which have gotten increasingly menacing, and eventually the girls start disappearing one by one. If it sounds familiar, there's a good reason why, but uh, but let me tell you, don't let that detract you from seeing it if you haven't seen it. And we're going to flash forward to 1978. This is also a crazy time, I think, in history, but uh, we have the release of John Carpenter's Halloween. Now, Halloween starts in the year 1968 with a point of view shot um, with a young Michael Myers killing his sister after she has, I think, the quickest sex known to man that lasted, I think, all of 10 seconds because you have the tracking shot and that guy's in and out, literally and figuratively. If that is the quickest sex you've ever witnessed, then I envy you at this moment. Really? <laughs> oh my God, we might have to start another podcast to deal with these issues. 
And uh, so Michael Myers kills his sister. The camera pulls back. It's revealed that he's a six-year-old child with a bloody butcher knife and a clown costume that he had on at Halloween. About 10, 10 years later, 10, 15 years later, something like that, he escapes the mental institution, is followed by the ever-present Dr. Loomis, uh, played by the wonderful Donald Pleasance, whose main psychiatric opinion is that he's evil. If you can play a drinking game with how many times Donald Pleasant says evil in this film, you're going to go blind. Now, he obviously returns to his hometown of Haddonfield and begins to stalk and kill uh, Laurie Strode's friends and ultimately struggles in combats with Laurie Strode herself, played by the uh, wonderful Jamie Lee Curtis, until he is almost kind of sort of subdued by both Laurie and Dr. Loomis. And then they go to look with the window they've pushed him out of and... He's gone because he's evil. The boogeyman, the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You know where we're going. And there you have the recipe for his slasher. So before we really get into the nuts and bolts of both of these movies, I feel like we should talk about um, what really constitutes a slasher film because, you know, it's a term that's kind of thrown around and uh, I wasn't even all that clear on it before I picked up the mic here. So, I mean, a slasher film is kind of defined by a mysterious killer that is stalking and killing victims sequentially. Um, It's often very violent, often stabbing hacking motions and not shooters. Um, so some of the earliest films that have been given the slasher film title are 13 Women from 1932, you've got Peeping Tom, and even Hitchcock's Psycho, which only had uh, a body count of two, but was still considered very influential. And the trend kind of continued with Herschel Gordon Lewis' work in the 1960s, what would come to be known as the splatter film genre, which was just basically slashers with upped gore and body count. And then there was also the Giallo movement, uh, pioneered by Mario Bava in the early 70s. So these were all precursors to some of the themes we're going to see in Black Christmas and Halloween. Absolutely. As Andrea said, uh, what was really interesting, though, about Black Christmas is that this is the first movie to combine all those elements. So it's the combination of slashing, of stalking, of, you know, the violence and the gore and really situating it with young people because they were really just trying to reach a youth market. And as I was saying earlier, Black Christmas was made to make money. They kind of took bits and pieces of the storylines of other really popular films of the time that were testing really well with young audiences and just tried to make something that would sell, which unfortunately it didn't do. But it did wind up creating a really interesting version of a slasher film. Now, Black Christmas combined all these elements, except for one, and this is the killer. You don't really see the killer except for an eyeball and hands. And it's still, you know, it's still kind of implied that the killer could have been Jess, played by Olivia Hussey's boyfriend. But that last scene, it's pretty clear it's not to me. Girl killed in the park tonight. Yes, we heard. Well, we're just helping the police to look for the killer. Well, 
Well, we'd ask you in, you know. <laughs> but our dog died last night. Oh, oh uh, well, well, we don't want to bother you at a time like that. Uh, we were just wondering if you noticed anything suspicious here tonight. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, well, uh, you just keep your doors and windows locked, and uh, and you'll be safe. Okay. You understand? Thanks, yeah. we will. And remember, there might be others from the search party around, so yeah. uh, don't be afraid. We'll be around and see that you're safe. Thank you, Thank you very much. Just remember to lock those doors and windows yes. out, eh? Okay. Okay, yes. then. Bye, Good bye. night now. <laughs> I'd rather face the killer. <laughs> Along comes 1978, you got Halloween, and you have one of the most iconic characters ever committed to screen. And he must get almost, I would be shocked if he had, you know, any less screen time than, say, Donald Pleasance or Jamie Lee Curtis. He's so omnipresent in this film. You know, it's the iconic white mask and the weird hair and the um, workman's jumpsuit. So the figure becomes something more identifiable. And as the sequels rolled on and on and on, he was the one link, really. So he kind of becomes the protagonist rather than, you know, the young women who are trying to survive. So it becomes a really interesting discrepancy between victims as protagonists and the antagonist as protagonist. Yeah, that's right. And we are going to talk a little bit later about uh, about the whole final girl theory and about how it, Halloween is effectively able to kind of switch the protagonist from the killer to Laurie a little bit later, which is something that, you know, Black Christmas didn't really do. But where Black Christmas kind of makes up for that is the fact that the main protagonist female characters are excellent, really well drawn, well written, beautifully portrayed and really accessible throughout, which for me, wasn't so much the case with Halloween. Yeah, I'm so happy those girls in Halloween died. They were awful. I <laughs> I really don't like them. Lori being like, oh, no, my books. I forgot them. You don't need books. You're a girl. You know, it's that kind of stuff that's really insipid and really, you know, I found it like all they wanted to do was talk about like sexy sex. It was some kind of you know, male auteur fantasy of what high school girls talked about. You know, it's totally insane. We have three new cheers to learn in the morning. The game is in the afternoon. I have to get my hair done at five, and the dance is at eight. I'll be totally wiped out. I don't think you have enough to do tomorrow. Totally. As usual, I have nothing to do. It's your own fault, and I don't feel a bit sorry for you. Hey, Linda, Lori. Why didn't you wait for me? We did. 15 minutes. You totally never showed. That's not true. Here I am. What's wrong, Annie? Not smiling. I'm never smiling again. Paul dragged me into the boys' locker room. Exploring uncharted territory. Totally charted. Just talk. (laughs) Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Old Jerko got caught throwing eggs and soaping windows. His parents grounded him. He can't come over to him. I thought you were babysitting to me. The only reason she babysits is to have a oh, place shit. To... I have a place for that. I forgot my chemistry book. So who cares? I always forget my chemistry book and my math book and my English book and my, let's see, my French book. And, well, who needs books anyway? I don't need books. I, I always forget all of my books. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't really matter if you have your books or not. Whereas, as Andrea was just saying, in Black Christmas, you have these, in my mind certainly, these really well-drawn characters that were, you know, maybe in some senses kind of stock, but they all were, like, funny and identifiable. And Margot Kidder. Margot Kidder as Barb. 
you don't get much better than that. Um, you know, in Olivia Hussey's character, Jess, who is the final girl in Black Christmas, she's dealing with having an abortion, which she talks about openly and that she wants more for her life. And that's why she's choosing not to have a child. It's so interesting and it's so well drawn, whereas the characters in Halloween are so disposable. I mean, I had to make notes on their names. I don't I don't even remember them, really. Yeah, like we both had to look them up and they're so unmemorable and I just I was glad when they were dead frankly right which I think was kind of the point I think I think they were kind of drawn that way which is what really made Laurie stick out again like when we get into the final girl thing I think you know they make uh, they make certain women very disposable and these are the women who embrace sexuality and uh, and do what they want be it in campy ways um so yeah, ha- Halloween, just to refresh you, that we're following a bunch of high school students. There's Laurie Strode, her friend Annie, and her friend Linda. And when I say friends, <laughs> I say it in the loosest sense of the term because they're actually pretty not awesome to her. They're, they're really dismissive of her when she says she feels like she's being followed. And my God, you know, I was a high school girl once and if a friend said that to me, I would not shrug that off. And then there's the whole thing where Annie kind of gets Lori to babysit for her so that she can sneak off with her boyfriend. <laughs> and it just kind of seemed, I don't know. I think it's these kind of really insipid characters that we're dealing with. But what's interesting about them, the one thing that is interesting about them, is that they they are kind of daughters of the town. This is a small town, Haddonfield, Illinois. Um, and you've got Lori, who again is probably the most well-drawn character in the film. Uh, and her dad is a seems like a pretty prominent real estate agent they have strode realty and i believe it's annie's father who is the sheriff um or the kind of cop of the town so these are this is this kind of whitewashed portrait of suburbia um and in black christmas you've got these young women who are out on their own the only kind of sense of any family we get is from claire's father who's desperately searching for his daughter um and barb's mom who seems like she could give two shits about her daughter and what she does at Christmas. Well, super tongue strikes again. Fastest tongue in the West. That was sick. I really don't think you should provoke somebody like that, Barb. Oh, listen, this guy's minor league in the city. I get two of those a day. Maybe. But you know, that town girl was raped a couple of weeks ago. Darling, you can't rape a townie. You really are too much, Barb. Oh, come on. This is a sorority house, not a convent. I'll see you later. I'm going to go pack. Come on, Claire. She didn't mean anything. No, really, Jess, it's okay. I have to finish packing anyway. Hasn't she had enough trouble fitting in here without you getting at her all the time? Come on, I know a professional virgin when I see one. Obviously, another really interesting part of the movies are the way figures of authority are dealt with. Um, Now, in Black Christmas, you have the house mother, who's one of the most fantastic alcoholics ever committed to screen. That woman has Mickey's of God knows what shoved everywhere in that sorority house. I think it's Sherry. Oh, that's right. It is Sherry, (laughs) which is the most wonderful old woman drink. Uh, And then you have Claire's father, unbeknownst to them, they don't know Claire's dead, and you know, wrapped up in the attic um, on a rocking chair. Uh, and he's searching for his daughter. He's going to the police. And despite the really idiotic death sergeant, uh, the cops in Black Christmas 
are actually trying to solve the case and they're trying to solve this other kind of murder of you know the girl who was you know found in the park and is this connected to what's going on at the sorority house they're actively present and they're actively trying to do something it also helps that you know your lead cop is played by one mr john saxon who would play a less awesome version of this part in nightmare on elm street but he's awesome it's another great kind of character throwback part that is always really fun to see um and then on the flip side of this you've got halloween annie's dad who i just mentioned is the kind of sheriff police officer they are so they're so frustrating to watch they just kind of like sit around their thumbs up their butt and they feel really ineffectual and the other presence of authority that I always think is probably the most chilling scene for me now in Halloween is when Lori's running through the streets, you know, trying to get someone to help her and everyone's just kind of closing their blinds and locking the door because they think she's, you know, a crazed girl. You know, no one's actively trying to help her. And it is kind of this weird statement for me of, you know, that we have this whitewashed town with no sense of authority and no sense of trying to make things better and trying to investigate. Everyone seems to just want to like keep themselves to themselves. Another thing I noticed that was kind of interesting about the police force in Black Christmas was that, I mean, they're all men. It makes sense, I guess, for the time. You know, it's, it's, it's unsurprising that the force would be comprised of all men, but they refer to themselves as men constantly throughout. And it was almost to the point that it was noticeable, right? It's like, we don't have enough men for that. And we've got men parked outside and men, men, menly men, men. And so, yeah, there definitely is an element of, uh, you know, this is a sorority house of all women. And so the men kind of want to protect them en masse. As regards Lori, yeah, nobody takes her seriously except for uh, Loomis, who has an idea of the evil that she's up against. But yeah, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs and I always, every time I watch that scene, I always think about how, you know, if I drop the F word really quietly, my neighbor heard it and they're going to tell my mom and here's her running down the street and, uh, and, and nobody wanting to hear it. So it was kind of neat. Yeah. I don't think I'd be too thrilled if Dr. Loomis was my doctor. He'd probably just say I was like kind of evil. I bet he has an evil rating scale. Because that's really all he does in this movie. And that's all he does in any of the movies. I wonder if he has any other patients. I hope he's giving them proper prescriptions. <laughs> you must think me a very sensitive doctor. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I do have a permit. Seems to me you're just plain scared. Yes. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I met him. Fifteen years ago, I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. I'm going to wait for him. But other than that, so yeah, I think, I think your best sense of authority is probably Dr. Loomis, who is trying to fight against the mental institution who apparently doesn't believe in evil. You know, why would you? 
and is like taking the time um, away, I'm assuming from his other patients, <laughs> to go to Haddonfield and try to stop and subdue Michael Myers. And God bless Donald Pleasance. He tries so hard with his little pistol. So I mentioned before that I feel like Halloween gets a lot more credit than Black Christmas for its thematic elements. You know, Halloween gets the most credit for the final girl trope, as coined by Carol Clover. And the final girl, if you're unfamiliar, is essentially the female lead who confronts the killer, survives the massacre, and lives to tell the tale, so to speak. And I've got a list of some characteristics here. The final girl is more often than not very virginal, very pure. She's sexually unavailable in some way. Um, No drugs, no sex, no hedonism whatsoever. Oftentimes has a unisex name, has a shared history with the killer, and uh, the killer usually uses a phallic object to dispense with these women who are not the final girl, because she survives. And the audience is um, is made to identify with the killer, but that identity is later transferred, which we're going to talk about shortly. But did I about cover the final girl? or you're... Yeah, um, I think you did. It, it is interesting, because there are a lot of deviations from this. I mean, we could bring up a lot of them, but Jess in Black Christmas is probably the most interesting derivation from that kind of list. Because she has had sex. Because in one of her earliest scenes, she's talking about having an abortion with her boyfriend, who apparently was fine after the whole 2001 Space Odyssey thing. Uh, And he's gone to college, so that's really great. But um, yeah, I think Lori is pretty much the quintessential version of this. She's probably the purest incarnation of this. And Jess is a more flawed human being who is really struggling with a lot of different ideas that are being thrown at her and that she's kind of growing up with. So in light of that, do you think we can still say that Jess is a final girl if she kind of only subscribes to two or three of these six characteristics that we've given? Yeah, you know what? I I would say for me, she is, because one of the most interesting things I think about a final girl, and a lot of them in the bigger franchises have come back, obviously Laurie in Halloween, Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street, there's something about surviving and they have to live with the trauma. They have to live with the trauma of discovering their friends dead, of having to fight off this mass killer who they were previously unaware of. And Jess has that too. I mean, we never get a sequel to Black Christmas, not really. But there is a sense that she is lying in this bed. She's been put under sedatives because she was probably hysterical. I would have been as well. And she's going to have to live with this trauma and this fear. And it's almost, it is kind of like a punishment almost in in a very odd way but you know you're being punished for surviving you're being punished for fighting back so you know I have to admit that I don't find the final girl trope to be all that progressive especially as it pertains to Halloween I feel like it's really cool that there's a shift in identification from male killer to female victim and I do appreciate that but I feel like it it lends itself to this binary, this uh, this virgin whore dichotomy that has resulted from the final girl trope. And I feel like that dualism is pretty misogynist in itself. And it has kind of ruined a lot of subsequent horror movies and a lot of uh, a lot of strong female leads that uh, that they become trivialized because of this. Like, I can't really applaud the idea that good girls are worthy of identification and survival while naughty girls are just dispensable. And the trope is so overused that it doesn't even offend me anymore. It more so just bores me. 
And Black Christmas, these sorority girls are as close to human beings as I think I've ever seen in horror film. You know, some of them drink a little and some of them drink a lot. (laughs) They have boyfriends that they have sex with and they defend their reproductive rights. I I was pretty blown away by the Jess and Peter pregnancy subplot, which on the one hand was kind of clearly a device to vilify Peter and make him a possible suspect. But it also really made you believe in Jess as a strong female lead who doesn't have to adhere to any of the extremes, uh, which is so rare nowadays. I think my favorite final girl in horror of all time is actually it's actually from a book, and it would be Susan Snell from Carrie. Have you read Carrie? Yeah. Well, I haven't read it, but I've seen the movie. Well, in, in the movie, I felt like she was just kind of... Uh, she was just kind of the one boning John Travolta and was just, you know, r- responsible for a lot of the horror that happened. But in the book, a lot of the book is told from the point of view of Susan Snell as a survivor, uh, you know, of the kind of prom night massacre type thing. And she had a really interesting perspective because she, you know, like I said, she was she was complicit in um, in the pig's blood incident. And so, you know, she came up with it. She was among one of the girls who bullied Carrie prior to that. And then she... She survived the whole ordeal. So her point of view was really interesting. I think she's probably my favorite final girl. I think my favorite final girl um, would probably have to be Ginny in Friday the 13th Part 2. Mainly because right before her kind of final tussle with Jason, she's at a bar drinking. So I like to imagine she's kind of drunk when she's fighting him. But she does such a kick-ass job. She uses psychology on him. Psychology. She pretends to be his mom. And she's so, like, she's just awesome. I'd totally go for drinks with that girl. One of these days I have to use sociology to kick someone's ass in some way, shape, or form. Oh, my God, just shame them. Culturally shame them. And another really interesting comparison, for me anyway, um, between the two is the remakes they've both had. Obviously, Rob Zombie um, has had two Halloween remakes that came out, I believe, in 2007 and 2009. And then the Black Christmas remake, uh, which I believe came out in 2006. Obviously, this is not a podcast or a topic that we're talking about fully. But I did want to mention it because it is so interesting that these two remakes go into so much detail about the killer. They're not even trying to really make a final girl. They're not even trying to have us identify with the victims. It's all identifying with the killers. And it's so boring. It's so dull. I've seen the Rob Zombie ones, I think, once each. And I'm going to cop to it. I've seen about half of the Black Christmas one. And when I found out that, spoiler alert, Billy was some kind of, like, multiple personality disorder kid with jaundice, I, no. No, no, no. I took that out of my DVD player and put in the 1974 version and went on with my happy little life. But I think it is interesting that we are looking at a time period um, that we're kind of coming out of, of this series of remakes that we are so desperate to understand and define and sell a movie based on the killer rather than the real people within it. Because it's just, it's taking all the pressure off creating real characters with feelings and emotions out of it. Because you can just put a mask on a guy and bam, look, that's your movie. It'll open to at least $20 million and you're all set. I think what's really interesting about um, about the epidemic of remakes right now, if I, I was going to call it a plague and then I thought that might have been too dramatic, an outbreak is what it is. Like yeah, like that. I can't remember if that movie was any good. I'm trying to formulate an opinion. Russo was in it. 
Ew. <laughs> anyway, I think the reason that that's happening is because of the internet. I feel like in this day and age, the fan, the viewer, the audience has a louder voice in film production and in ideas uh, than ever before. And simply because these old movies that we love, we're still talking about. You know, they're not publishing reviews in magazines of the old Black Christmas, but there are forums and stuff where fans are talking about how much they love it. And, you know, maybe a couple of fans said, man, I wish I knew more about Michael Myers. I wish I knew a little bit more about Billy. And then filmmakers who are visionary visually but maybe not so much story-wise like Rob Zombie sees that and is like well let's give them what they want you know and he really does deliver the goods in terms of um in terms of mood and visuals but sometimes the audience really doesn't know what's best for them and if you ask a little kid who's watching Wizard of Oz you know they just really want to see the wizard but you know if we just brought out the wizard at the beginning it wouldn't be much of a movie would it But because of the way fans are talking about these movies, filmmakers just know that they're going to make money at the box office, which is which is my theory for why there's so much shit out there nowadays in terms of remakes. So I think it's about time to wrap up here and um, let's give you our conclusions on this whole Black Christmas versus Halloween Smackdown 2012 end of days mind calendar business for me. I think Black Christmas has a lot more residence because of the way the characters are drawn. And I think most importantly, because of the ambiguity of the killer. You never see him. You see an eyeball, um, which is red, kind of, and you see hands. You don't know who he is. You don't know what his face is. And to me, what I find, I always find it scariest when you don't quite see what the entity is that's causing people harm. That chills me. That stays with me. Now, obviously, you do get a flash of Michael Myers' actual face in Halloween, which is not that scary. And also, it's just, it's not as interesting to me. I find watching Halloween is, you know what, maybe the horror fans are going to come after me now, but I find it's a bit of a chore. It's a bit of a slog to get through. Um, There's not a lot of interesting things in it. There's not a lot of humor and kind of oddball characters in it. It feels quite dour, and I feel like that's with this series really comes across as is dour it's very it's dark it's kind of dull it's always Michael Myers stalking someone and it is that thing of diminishing returns it just becomes less and less interesting and I think out of the other big horror series here I am saying horror again you've got obviously I think Friday 13th is fun and it kind of knows what it is which is a ripoff of something like Halloween but they have way more fun with it it's way weirder and what's even weirder is the Nightmare on Elm Street series which is so off the walls that even if I don't enjoy some of them um cough the dream child cough they're still so odd and there's some great moments in each of them that they're still really fun to watch but um I think Black Christmas has a lot more to offer us as viewers, um, as critics, and as thinkers. I think there's so much more to this film that we've touched on and that we've been able to take away from. Yeah, I totally have to agree. I think if I had to choose one of the two movies to only watch for the rest of my life, it would definitely be Black Christmas, largely because of uh, the reasons that Alex said. The humor is great. The humor comes from characters like Barb, played by Margot Kidder, who is kind of a boozy, but she is so much fun. And I feel like even when she's being obnoxious, the film is never condescending toward her and it's not mocking her. You know, it's it's just her personality and it's great fun. And the same for uh, for, for for the house mom. I think I 
want to be Barb when I grow up. Oh my God, she's so good. I just want to wear chokers all the time. Was she wearing a choker? Yeah, in the first scene, she has that black choker and it's kind of hot. Okay. All right. <laughs> there you have it. So in terms of like, which is the first or the most important slasher film, you know, I always find debates like that kind of, kind of empty. I mean, who cares, really? The defining slasher film, I feel like they, they both definitely have elements and they can both be individually and collectively credited to starting the trend. And the trend isn't something that I'm overly fond of. So I kind of don't even want to give Black Christmas that label because I feel like it uh, it belittles it a little bit. But uh, great, great film. Great ending. You know, they both kind of had these open ends. But for some reason, Black Christmas was able to give me goosebumps that Halloween was just not at all. And I, I, I think for me, um, if you're taking it down to what we kind of said as our thesis earlier on, what is the original slasher film? I think if you look at slasher films in terms of box office and what they became, I would have to give it to Halloween. They really, you know, with the Michael Myers and setting that kind of iconic character, even though it's not my favorite, I got to give it to them. But I think Black Christmas is for those that love it. They love it a lot. And Halloween, for those who love it, love it a lot. And... Um, you know, I'm sure there are businesses out there, people who manufacture Michael Myers' masks for a living. In fact, I know there are. And then there are also the times, like in Halloween H2O, where they have to CGI the mask in. And you can tell the moments where they CGI it in. And it's just as painful as you think, if you do not know what I'm referring to. So that's it. For the horror faculty, your appointment is done. We have no more office hours for the next little while, but we will be coming back in the new year with new topics, new things to talk about. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, you can always get us at facultyofhorror at gmail.com. And wishing you a very happy and creepy holiday season. This is Alex West. And Andrea Subasati. Office hours are closed. <laughs> <laughs>